This week's episode of A Little Wiser is a follow-up to my interview with Michelle Gonzalez-Reed on losing her son to schizophrenia. I was lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Laura erickson Schroth, a psychiatrist and the chief medical officer at the Jed Foundation. The Jed Foundation is a nonprofit based in New York that is working at the forefront of youth mental health and suicide prevention. Well, the intention of today's mini-episode is to learn more about schizophrenia. As a mother of two teenagers, I wanted to take the opportunity with Dr. Laura to also learn more about the mental health crisis America's teens and young adults are facing. Now on to today's episode of A Little Wiser. Hello, Dr. Laura, and welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. You know, I want to talk about last week's episode with Michelle and in particular schizophrenia so we can really understand more about that illness. But I'm curious sort of to start by zooming out. Where are we with the mental health crisis of young adults in this country? Yeah, I think young people are really struggling right now, and there's a lot going on around them that's contributing to that. Um, We're seeing that in the numbers. So we're seeing that trends are going up for anxiety and depression for young people. For instance, the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which is a survey of uh, high schoolers across the United States, showed that over the last decade, there's been an increase from about 28% to about 42% of young people in high school reporting that they have uh, periods where they feel persistently sad or hopeless. And we're seeing an increase in suicide deaths in young people. So uh, suicide is now the second leading cause of death for young people ages 10 to 34. Uh, so there's a lot going on with young people and there's a lot we can do as you know adults who care about them, parents, guardians, teachers, coaches, uh, to uh, really make an impact. What are some of the contributing factors? Yeah. So I think this is a unique experience that young people are having now. uh, And it's pretty different from the experiences that others have had in the past during teen years. Teen, Teen years and young adulthood are really hard. You know, no matter when in history you go through that, they're really difficult because your emotions are shifting quickly over time. You're figuring yourself out, your identity. And actually, our brains are not fully formed until our mid 20s, especially the frontal lobe of our brains, where Uh, You know, we uh, learn how to do a lot of things like, you know, make decisions and figure out how to do long term planning. Uh, So for any time in history, uh, it's really difficult around that age. But more recently, over the last 10 years or so, a lot of things have been changing in our society. So we're seeing a lot, for example, young people experiencing news very quickly. They're seeing things pass through their news feeds that would have been harder to access uh, at, during other generations. For example, they're seeing you know, the wars around the world. They're seeing movements for social justice in our country, you know, against racial injustice in our country. They're seeing what's going on with the climate crisis. And all of this is happening right in front of them. 
And at the same time, you know, we talk a lot about social media and, you know, there are some really positive potential effects to social media. There are a lot of young people that may be in areas of the country, for example, where there aren't a lot of people like them around them. And social media is really important for, you know, information, learning, connection, figuring out identities, especially for LGBTQ young people, uh, for youth of color who are in areas that are primarily white. But there are also a lot of potential negative effects effects to having sort of social media and internet use uh, in young people's daily lives to the extent that they are. So there's a lot of sort of comparisons. There's a lot of overwhelming periods of time spent online that could be spent in person, making connections with other people, learning about themselves. There is this dopamine rush when you use social media and you see likes come in and this kind of hijacking of reward systems. And so we really, these are, this is the water that they swim in and they need these online connections and these online worlds, but they're also difficult to navigate. So we have to help young people to figure out the world that they're living in now that's really different from ours. Thank you for that. We keep seeing the headlines and I think a lot of parents, myself included, navigating social media in the lives of our children, especially where we're just not familiar with the technology. But I think the notion of balancing it out with human connection and honoring, as you said, when it can be used for good. And I think both of your illustrations were so beautifully put. Absolutely. I think, you know, when we talk about suicide prevention specifically, one of the core domains that we talk about is community connection. Because if people feel part of a community, if they feel connected to others, if they feel like they're making meaningful changes, it gives them reasons to live and reasons to want to be here. Yeah. And, you know, to backtrack to 90 seconds ago when I said it was complex and confusing, it's actually not because our adult relationships with technology, right? Like when I'm in a rabbit hole and I put down my phone and take a walk or call a friend or make time to connect with the people in my house, it's immediate, right? Our well-being. And I do think that is becoming more and more elusive for all of us. Absolutely. There's so much evidence, you know, in the contrary as well, that loneliness and social isolation uh, lead to depression, anxiety, substance use, uh, and and actually earlier death by all causes, uh, medical causes as well. And then we know in the opposite direction that social connection and community really boost mental health. And that's true for everyone of all ages. Thank you for all of that. And I know it'll speak to a lot of our listeners. We have a lot of parents who listen to this podcast today in particular for a show who has discussed mental health in so many different forms and from so many different points of view and perspectives over the last four years. Schizophrenia is not something that I personally deeply understand and That's why having you here today with the Jed Foundation after our interview with Michelle, I just thought it was a wonderful opportunity to have a deeper understanding of schizophrenia and what that looks like for people living with it or people loving people who are living with it. So I do want to shift focus first in layman's terms. What is schizophrenia? 
Yeah, and I would first say it was really so meaningful to hear Michelle's story and to hear about what it was like with her son, because I think it really provides an example of what a lot of families go through when a young person is developing symptoms of schizophrenia. So in terms of symptoms of schizophrenia, you know, schizophrenia is what we call a psychotic illness. It primarily is what we call psychosis, which is a disturbance in perception of reality. And there are different ways that that can happen. One of those is hallucinations, which are sensory experiences. So auditory hallucinations, hearing voices, visual hallucinations, seeing things that aren't there. That is one of the ways uh, that someone can experience psychosis. Another is paranoia, and that's a disturbance of reality too. It's a belief that others might be after you or against you or having maybe a vague sense that there's some kind of more complicated system going on. And then the other way that it can manifest is delusions. And delusions are false beliefs. They're beliefs that um, are not true. And you, you know, you can't prove to the person that they're not true based on providing more evidence. They're fixed false beliefs. And so people might have delusions that they're being persecuted, or they might have hyper-religious delusions that they're somehow involved in, um, you know, part of God's plan in a way that goes beyond being part of religion, where you feel connected spiritually, but gets to the point where someone has beliefs that are you know, just untrue. And there are some specific examples of delusions that might be helpful. So, you know, it's pretty common to have, uh, for example, something called thought broadcasting, which is the idea that the belief that your thoughts are being broadcast somewhere else, that other people can hear your thoughts. A lot of people with schizophrenia also have beliefs that they can receive messages or that messages are being sent to them, say, through the radio or the TV And I think it's important to note that we hear the term psychosis in sort of common language, and it's not always used in the way that we use it within psychiatry. You know, within psychiatry, psychosis uh, is a disturbance in your perception of reality, whereas sometimes psychosis is used in sort of general language to talk about other things. It's often connected to violence, for example. So, you know... uh, Someone might say in a TV show or a film, you know, that that person is psychotic and they're coming after people to murder them. Actually, what they're referring to there is not psychosis. They're talking about what in psychiatry we might call antisocial personality disorder. And you might hear the terms sociopath or psychopath. And those are really different from schizophrenia. So people with antisocial personality disorder, this is a pervasive pattern over the course of their life where they are unemotional in terms of caring about other people's emotions. They're callous. They're more likely to harm other people. And that's a really separate thing and unrelated to schizophrenia. Um, People with schizophrenia are actually more likely to be victims than perpetrators of violence. And so I think that's a big myth that we need to bust about people with psychosis, people with schizophrenia. And then finally, I would say the other thing that many people don't know about schizophrenia is that because it's a brain disease, it doesn't just cause these disturbances and negative symptoms that people can have with schizophrenia are things like social withdrawal and isolation and cognitive effects like decreased you know, processing speed or working memory or ability to reason or problem solve. They might have emotional effects where they don't express their emotions in the same way. So you may see people with schizophrenia who have 
their face may appear flat and unemotional. And sometimes these are the symptoms that end up limiting someone even more than the disturbances in reality. I'm glad that you touched on the idea and the problematic truth that I think with many different mental illnesses, the misunderstanding often comes from depiction in Hollywood of screenwriters, you know, casting somebody in a television series we love or a movie. And that distinction is really important because my guess is that's a misunderstanding that that many people have for that very reason. I'm curious about the onset, you know, if it exists, if there is an average age or range of the onset of the illness and when people are diagnosed. Yeah. So from research, what we know is that there is a gender difference. Typically, men develop symptoms of schizophrenia earlier than women. Men often in their late teens, their early 20s, and then women typically in their mid to late 20s uh, up to early 30s. And of course, these are average ages. But in general, it's less likely to start you know, before the teen years or after the late 30s. And we do know that there are some differences in people who develop schizophrenia at earlier ages or later ages. So, for example, studies show that people with earlier onset schizophrenia are more likely to have more significant cognitive symptoms that really limit their ability to function. Are there early signs or indicators or is it something that's sort of lying dormant, you know, for lack of a better word? What is the the onset and the pre-diagnosis ramp up look like for patients? Something that I think can make this diagnosis really devastating is that, you know, for a lot of families, the young person doesn't show signs early on as a child that would be recognizable. And so it's a really big shock to the family when the young person begins to change And there are some things that, you know, you can look out for, but the early signs can be somewhat vague and it can be unclear if the person is developing schizophrenia or maybe another mental health issue. So some of the early signs that might appear in the late teens or early 20s are things like more social isolation, low motivation, staying in bed a lot, depressed mood, kind of developing vague thoughts or speech, those kinds of things. And and then, you know, as things progress, the person might move into having things that meet more of a, you know, the diagnostic criteria for schizophrenia. But early on, it can be somewhat vague. So I, I would encourage families when they see those sort of vague symptoms starting to develop, that's the time to try to get the young person into care. Because if there are things that can be recognized as early signs of psychosis, there are, there are actually some pretty great programs in different areas of the country. I'm based in New York City, so we have a program in New York State called the On Track Program, which is an early intervention program for people showing early signs of psychosis. Does that early intervention and treatment impact the long-term prognosis? Does the early intervention make a difference? Exactly. Yeah. So they have found that the earlier you intervene, the more likely it is that someone has better outcomes. And some of the reasons that we think, 
you know, that might be happening is that when someone starts to develop, for example, uh, delusions, those delusions need to, you know, sort of harden into systematic delusions. So if you can get to someone earlier on, you can help them to be able to recognize and reality test a bit better and maybe get to the point where they're able to tell the difference at times when those thoughts are coming up between things that their mind might be telling them and reality. And then they're just more connected in and they have more people who they can look to for help. Is there, I would imagine there is, but is there a spectrum to this illness? And and if so, what does that look like? Yeah. So we don't know as much as we'd like to know about schizophrenia. And one of the things that we don't understand well is why certain people seem to have kind of what we might call more mild symptoms, more of an ability to do reality testing, which is checking their experiences against other evidence. While for others, delusions and hallucinations are really extremely difficult to distinguish from reality. And we're not sure, you know, why that is. And there's a lot of research going on to try and figure out, are there different types of schizophrenia? Are there different genes involved? Are there ways that we might be able to target treatments or therapies? But there is quite a bit of a spectrum. Is it episodic or does it do the symptoms sort of remain ever present? I mean, does do people go through periods where they're presenting significantly less? Yes, that depends on the person too. So typically the cognitive symptoms, if someone has them, will be pretty um, chronic. And sometimes people can go in and out of the kind of disturbances of reality that they may be hearing voices or seeing things for a period of time, and then that may go away for some time, or they might start to feel more paranoid for a certain amount of time and then a little bit less. So that it can be episodic in that way. And what is the treatment for schizophrenia? I, I, I know it's limited, or at least it's in the spectrum of mental health diagnosis, it's not a particularly hopeful diagnosis because of treatment options. Well, I think you're pointing out something that's really important, which is that the reason that it can be very hard to treat is because many people with schizophrenia lack insight into having a mental illness. So in many other mental health conditions, the person with the condition can recognize that they have it. So I feel depressed and I recognize that that's um, something that could be maybe considered a mental health condition or anxiety or something like that. Your guest, Michelle, brought up the term, which is a term to describe any kind of medical condition that prevents the person from recognizing that they have that condition. So it's not just mental health conditions, certain types of strokes, dementia, um, and many people with schizophrenia have that lack of insight. For people with schizophrenia, it's because of how real their delusions or hallucinations really feel to them. They aren't able to recognize that those are psychotic symptoms. And if they can't see that they have it, it's really hard to partner with them in treatment. And so that's why it's important to get involved early on if possible, because like I said, the earlier it's recognized, the more likely it is that someone's able to live a more full life. You know, the longer someone goes with those active symptoms like delusions, the more likely they're to become more permanent belief systems. So in terms of, of treatment of those disturbances of reality, 
There are medications and there are therapies designed to treat schizophrenia. There can often be a fair amount of trial and error because different medications work better for different people and the side effect profiles are different. So you want to try to find something that doesn't have significant side effects that's going to make the person not want to keep taking it. So you want to find something that they're willing to take. Uh, There are also what we call long-acting injectable formulations of antipsychotic medications, and that means you might take a medication instead of by mouth, you might get an injection once a month, for example, and that can help someone who might not be able to remember to take their medications every day. And then for therapies, one of the best is called CBT for psychosis. Um, That's cognitive behavioral therapy for psychosis. That really helps to enhance people's life functioning. It helps them to reality test, to figure out how to tolerate their symptoms. So for example, if they're going to hear voices, but can learn through CBT to live with them and have them be part of their lives. The other therapy is really cognitive therapy, working, working with people's memory and problem solving and helping them to learn social skills. When I'm thinking now, when you shared the onset, I can only imagine being a mother who is mentally and emotionally well and ready to show up every day to help your child and have that being completely out of your control. That's a layer of it that certainly seems deeply complex and deeply frustrating and deeply heartbreaking for the people who are caregivers and love people who have this illness. Absolutely. I think it can be so hard for the people closest to someone with schizophrenia for that reason that people often don't recognize that they have it, but also because, you know, the people closest to someone with schizophrenia are often the ones who, if they're going to develop paranoia or delusions, they develop them about the people in their everyday lives, about their family and their friends, maybe their the staff at school, colleagues at work. And so to have raised someone and have them be part of your family and feel very connected through their childhood and then to have them, you know, have these beliefs about you is so difficult. What is it like to be a person living with schizophrenia if you can have our listeners walk in the shoes of what it feels like. Yeah, I mean, I think for many people who are developing schizophrenia, it's really scary. You know, they don't know what's happening. Their mind is starting to make connections where there really aren't connections. We call it salience. So things become more salient or take on more significance in their minds that actually aren't significant. So their their mind, for example, might tell them that if they see a car that's a certain color, that means the car could be following them or that seeing a certain number is a signal of danger. So these things start to develop in your mind. And many people don't know what to do with these thoughts because their mind is telling them that it's not safe and that it might not be safe to disclose those thoughts to other people. They might feel like they're in danger, or they might even feel often like their family's in danger. So if they reveal you know, anything to anyone else, that their family might actually be at risk. And a lot of times family members or friends wonder why someone developing schizophrenia won't just believe them when they tell them, you know, I'm here too, what you're experiencing isn't real. But the hard part of the illness is that it feels so real, that their mind is actually interpreting the world in a skewed way and they can't just snap out of it. Or they're hearing voices, for example, and they sound really real. They sound as though there's someone in the room with them talking to them. So if someone's telling you there's no other voice in the room, but you can absolutely hear it, it's really hard to trust the people around you. 
What are the biggest misconceptions or misunderstanding when it comes to this illness? You know, I think we've talked about some of them, but uh, they're they're really important to reemphasize. One of them is that some of the most impactful symptoms are not just the disturbances in reality, but actually the cognitive effects. They can be really devastating. It can, you know, go from a young person doing really well in school and having lots of social connections and seeming like they're going to thrive in the world and then become emotionally distant and, um, you know, non-communicative and their their cognitive function can, can really change so that their memory and their planning and those kind of things make it really difficult for them to, to have jobs, for example. Another misconception we talked about was about violence. We know that people with serious mental illness are actually much more likely to be victimized. So you see, you know, people often on the street who have schizophrenia and they're the victims of violence very, very frequently and they're much less likely to harm other people. One other is suicide rates. A lot of people don't know that schizophrenia actually has one of the highest uh, rates of suicide among all mental illnesses. There's a perception, I think, that it would be maybe depression that would have the highest rates. But actually early on in schizophrenia, when people are starting to see the potential effects of the disease and how it might really change the course of their lives, they are at pretty high risk for suicide. How rare is schizophrenia. Yeah. What are the statistics? I'm curious. So it's interesting. And, it, and I think it it tells us a little bit about where schizophrenia probably comes from. Um, so the prevalence is less than 1% of people across the world. Different studies show different numbers. So maybe say half a percent, one in 200 people. And that's that's pretty consistent around the world. Uh, and so, you know, one thing that that tells us is that we already know from other studies, too, that genetics play a large role. So the risk is really increased in families where other people have psychotic illnesses, including schizophrenia. We know that there are environmental triggers. Um, so we know that, you know, stress and the way our body responds to stress can be different for different people. So two people put under similar stressful situations, one might develop depression, one might develop anxiety, and another person might develop psychosis. So, you know, our brains are sort of wired to respond to stress in certain ways. So we know that there are some environmental triggers, but probably the environmental triggers um, more affect when and how someone develops schizophrenia than whether they will at all. That's probably more related to genetics. Based on those numbers, I don't know how many people listening will have, you know, somebody directly in their life who's living with schizophrenia. But what I do know from this podcasts and then, you know, just observing in my own life is so often with a illness, especially something as serious as this, it's as if the caregivers, you know, have a different version of it. And by that, I mean, everybody in close proximity, especially caregivers and families in a shared space are deeply impacted by the illness. So I'm curious, you know, for those who perhaps don't have a loved one, but have somebody in their life who is caregiving or caring and loving a person, what can we do to support those people, the friends and family of someone they love who's going through this? 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think one of the most important things is to learn what you can. And one thing you can do is listen to podcasts like this to learn about schizophrenia, to understand what are the myths and misconceptions about it. Because I think a lot of times people are kind of afraid to get involved, afraid of people who have psychotic illnesses or afraid to try to be the support for people in their lives who may have people with schizophrenia in their families because they don't know what to do or say. And so the more you know about it, the more you know that this is, you know, a brain disease that happens to people who are just like us, like everyone around us, um, that we all have the possibility of experiencing something like this, and that it's really scary for the person who's going through it. And it's really hard for the family members who, like us, might not know anything about it before their family member starts to develop symptoms. So I think the most important thing is to keep yourself informed and then to be offer, offer to be someone who's there for them, who can help to support them through the process, provide them with any resources that you might know about, uh, and you know, just be there to listen to what they're going through. Yeah, it's something, you know, we hear consistently and I've thought deeply about, but, you know, in our communities, when families have a child or someone going through cancer, you know, people are dropping off baked goods and there's ribbons around the trees. And so often when it comes to mental illness and addiction, people just go silent, you know, they, they, instead of drawing in closer, they don't say anything or do anything. So I, I just think that caregiver and how we can show up for the, the families is is really important. And also, we might be the first ones to recognize that something's going on, yeah. right? Like, you know, if you're a teacher or a coach or you're someone who works with young people, you might be the first one to recognize that something's going on and, and being able to be there for the family, let them know what you've noticed let them know that, you know, you're someone who knows a little bit about this in terms of, you know, we don't have to be scared. The first thing we need to do is try to get them connected to care. Uh, that goes a long way. Yeah. I've seen it firsthand with my teenagers, but teachers who are actively watching your kids and communicating with you, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, I had a teacher, you know, reach out about my daughter and concerns about, is she sleeping? Is she not sleeping? And we weren't even seeing it really at home. And I mean, that piece of health information is so critical. And it was a teacher who noticed the impact that for whatever reason we weren't seeing. So I think this idea that as a community of, you know, friends and teachers and coaches, we're all looking out for each other and for families and how everybody's doing with their mental and emotional health is is critical, especially right now during this, um, you know, time in our country. Absolutely. At Jed, we call those people uh, non-parent caring adults. And there are so many of them. And we are those people to a lot of the young people in our lives. So we may have nieces, nephews, we may work in school programs, we may coach a soccer team on the weekends, things like that. And what we know about resilience for young people is that they really need just one caring adult who's there and supportive for them in their lives, even if everything else is kind of falling apart around them. So any of us can be that person. Yeah. And for, for parents to be open to receiving information 
I, I think creating those relationships and energy where they feel that it's safe and welcome to share their observations. Absolutely. You know, we we started this conversation talking about not just schizophrenia, but the mental health crisis in our country at this time. And I would love to give our audience a call to action of specifically what are the things that we can do to show up, to be there, to show up differently, to show up better, to be there for teens and young adults, you know, at this time? Yeah, I would say the the one word I'd love people to walk away with is authenticity. I think if we can be there in authentic ways for young people, if we can show up as ourselves and listen to them and hear what they're going through and say, you know, I also have times when I have a difficult day, when I'm dealing with hard emotions, when I'm trying to get through These are the ways that I cope. I see all the things that are going on in the world around you. And I want to validate that as a young person, you know, you're not alone. We are in the middle of, you know, a climate crisis. There there are sort of like difficult things we're all dealing with on a daily basis. But I'm here and I'm in your life. And if you want to talk, I'm someone that you can come to. That's what that's what the message is that we want to send young people. Yeah, I think that, you know, practice of validation and acknowledging it versus trying to come up with a solution or, you know, it's not that bad or (laughs) there's bigger problems in the world. We know that doesn't work. But I think for a lot of parents, they're learning this behavior. It's it's, this way of parenting and being with teens. So it's it's a new practice and it needs to be a consistent one and would one in which we give ourselves i think some some grace absolutely it's not what we were all taught ourselves necessarily uh, but we can make a change so that it is what our children are taught yeah it's you know beyond impactful when you know i've seen it in practice in my home or with teenagers in my life so i love ending on that call to action for people listening Well, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and to the Jed Foundation for bringing us together today and also introducing us to Michelle and her story. And I feel everybody who listened is going to learn something new from you. And for that, I am grateful. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. Take care. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.